Well, good morning. It's so good to see you all here this morning. I'd like to welcome you once again. And for those of you joining us online, we're so glad you chose to worship with us today. Well, I have some good news that I want to share with you this morning. Now, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Peter in his message said, when you have good news, it's really hard not to share it. So I got to share my good news with you. About three weeks ago, on June the 24th, I became a nana for the fifth time. My daughter Leah had a little boy. His name is Darcy James Coglin. I actually have a picture of him to show you. If you haven't, if I haven't already got to you and showed you a picture, there he is. Isn't he just so cute? I am in love all over again. <laughs> He's just adorable. I saw him again on Friday. Oh, my heart. Anyways, I'm sorry. I just couldn't help myself. I had to share that. Uh, I took the... Oh, how nice. <laughs> I took the week off, actually, when Leah had the baby and to go and help, and I took care of the other two children and helped her with everything that needed to be done. And and, uh, actually, the week that I was there, when Leah was in the hospital, I was doing a craft with June. June is four. She just turned four the day before Darcy was born. And Rose, her other daughter, is one and a half. So we were doing a little craft in the basement. and We had pom-poms and construction paper and craft glue and craft scissors. You know the kind, the plastic kind that's only supposed to be able to cut paper? Well, I turned around for a second to help Rose with something, and I hear June say, look, Nana, I cut my hair. (laughs) And I turn around, and she has a piece, a long string of hair that she cut from the side of her head. And my first thought was, oh, no, Leah is going to be so upset with me. And then I said to June, I said, what have you done? You're not supposed to cut your own hair. I said, now you have a side bang. And, and she looked at me and so confidently, and she said something that has stayed with me ever since. She said, it's okay, Nana, I'm still June. It's okay, Nana, I'm still June. You know, sometimes we do things that are wrong or we make mistakes and it's so easy for us to forget who we are in Christ and live with guilt and shame and condemnation. But we need to be like June and say, it's okay because I'm a child of God. I am new. I'm forgiven. I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I am no longer a slave to sin because I have experienced the amazing grace of God. Today we're going to be looking at the topic of grace. Now, when I was thinking about and praying about what I was supposed to speak about today, I felt like I was supposed to talk about grace. But honestly, I didn't want to. (laughs) I asked God, I said, God, why do I have to speak about grace? And this is what I felt like he said to me. Connie, just look around. Look at how many people don't know the grace of God and don't understand the grace of God. And even how many believers live with a sense of shame and condemnation and fear of failure. How many believers are performance-oriented and perfection-driven? How many live discouraged lives because they feel like they can never measure up? In fact, that's how I felt for many years of my Christian life, like I could never, ever be good enough. And I 
was striving all the time. See, I believe a correct understanding of God's grace is at the center of our faith. It's absolutely foundational. A clear and accurate understanding of grace will tend to produce a strong, resilient, joyful Christian, while an uncertain and false understanding of grace will tend to produce a weak, fearful, and even resentful Christian. What we believe about grace is so important. Hebrews 12.15 says, See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. When we miss grace, things become toxic. And the word translated misses here comes um, from could also be translated, fails to receive or to obtain or fails to experience. Now, I heard that the people at Kellogg's did a research and they found out that a lot of their potential customers had grown up eating Kellogg's cornflakes but hadn't purchased a box in a very long time. So they came up with a campaign slogan that went like this, Kellogg's cornflakes, taste them again for the first time. See, they wanted to reinduce reintroduce people to their products so they invited them to try Kellogg's cornflakes as if they had never did and never tried them before. Uh, I know many of you have heard countless sermons on grace. Maybe you've made, read many books on grace. But my prayer this morning is that each one of us will have a fresh taste of God's grace and that you will once again be amazed by grace. The Bible has so much to say about grace. It's a word that's found more than 150 times in the New Testament. And what a magnificent word it is. And what a glorious subject it is. The more you learn about grace, I'm convinced the more you're going to be amazed by it. Philip Yancey, in his book entitled What's So Amazing About Grace, said, says, we use the word all the time. Many people say grace before meals, acknowledging daily bread as a gift from God. We're grateful for someone's kindness, gratified by good news, congratulated when successful, gracious in hosting friends. When a person's service pleases us, we leave a gratuity. A composer of music may add grace notes to the score. Some magazines publishers have a policy of gracing. That means if you sign up for 12 issues of a magazine, you may receive a few extra copies even after your subscription has expired. When we insult a person, we can say you're a disgrace, and a truly despicable person, we would say, has no saving grace about them. You see, we use the word all the time. People even name their children grace, but what does it mean? Well, the short answer is grace means unmerited favor. Grace is the unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor of God. Years ago, I learned the acrostic for the letters in the word grace to mean God's riches at Christ's expense. The Oxford Companion to the Bible says grace names the undeserved gift that creates relationships and the sustaining, responding, forbearing attitude plus action that nurtures relationships. In other words, grace makes our relationship with God and other people possible. Now, there's all sorts of definitions out there that seek to describe grace. But I would say that grace is one of those things in life that you just can't explain fully. You have to experience 
experience it to begin to understand it. It's kind of like trying to describe romantic love or what an enchilada with spicy Diablo sauce tastes like from your favorite Mexican restaurant. You can't, you can use words to describe it, but you just can't really understand it until you've experienced it yourself. And when something is best understood through experience, it's best taught through stories. Stories bring you into experience. And the Bible is full of stories that teach us about grace. When Jesus wanted to help people understand the grace of God, he didn't go into a lengthy and detailed explanation. Instead, he told the story of the prodigal son. See, stories of grace help us understand more fully what it means. And it's like this story that I read from Timothy Paul Jones' book called Proof. He writes in this book about his middle daughter who had previously been adopted by another family. He was sure the couple had the best of intentions, but they never quite integrated the adopted child into their family of biological children. For one reason or another, whenever they vacationed at Disney World, they took their biological children with them, but they left their adopted daughter with a family friend. And usually, at least in the child's mind, this happened because she didn't uh, she did something wrong that precluded her from her presence on the trip. After a couple of rough years, they dissolved the adoption, and Timothy and his wife ended up welcoming an eight-year-old girl into their home. And so by the time they had adopted her, she had seen many pictures of Disney World. She had heard about the rides and the characters, and she, she had heard about the parades. But when it came to passing through the gates of the Magic Kingdom, she had always been the one left on the outside. Once he found out about this, Timothy made plans to take her to Disney World. He announced the trip, but what he didn't expect was the prospect of visiting Disney would produce a stream of downright devilish behavior in, the newest, in his newest daughter. In the months leading up to the trip to Magic Kingdom, she stole food, she lied, she whispered insults, carefully crafted to hurt her older sister as deeply as possible. And as the days on the calendar moved closer to the trip, she just, her, her actions just spiraled and multiplied. Well, a couple of days before the trip, Timothy pulled his daughter into his lap to talk through her latest escapade. I know what you're going to do, she said flatly. You're not going to take me to Disney World, are you? And suddenly, her downward spiral started to make sense. She knew that she couldn't earn her way into the magic kingdom. She had tried and failed that test several times. So she was living in a way that placed her as far as possible from the most magical place on earth. So he asked her, he said, is this trip something we're doing as a family? And she nodded. Are you a part of our family? And she nodded again. Then you're going with us. And Even though you might experience some consequences for your actions to help you remember what's right or wrong, you are coming because you're part of this family. We're not leaving you behind. And despite that conversation of reassurance, her behavior didn't improve. It pretty much spiraled out of control. Even at every hotel and rest stop on the way to Disney World, but still they headed to Disney World. And on the day he had promised, they went. And it was a typical Disney day. Overpriced tickets, overpriced lunch, 
lots of lines mingle with lots of Disney magic. In the hotel room that evening, a very different child emerged. She was exhausted, pensive, and a little weepy at times, but her month-long facade of rebellion had faded. When bedtime rolled around, he prayed with her, held her, and asked, So how was your first day at Disney World? She closed her eyes and snuggled down into her stuffed unicorn. After a few moments, she opened her eyes ever so slightly and said, Daddy, I finally got to go to Disney World, but it wasn't because I was good. It was because I'm yours. And then he writes, that's the message of outrageous grace. Outrageous grace isn't a favor that you can achieve by being good. It's a gift you receive by being God's. When I read that, I just thought I loved that story because it just is so true. So this morning, we're going to look at Titus 2, 11 to 15, and see what Paul had to say about grace and why it should amaze us. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me, Titus 2, 11 to 15. If not, you can follow along on the screen. It says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things we should, you should teach, encourage, and rebuke, rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Let's pause for a moment and pray. God, we just thank you for your word that helps us and teaches us and instructs us, God. Also, thank you for your amazing grace in each one of our lives. God, I pray that today you would just help us to understand and your grace even at a deeper level, that you would set us free from our performance and the things we try to do, God, to earn your favor because you love us so very much and your grace is so amazing. I just thank you and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the first thing we see that's amazing about grace is that God's grace saves us. Let me ask you a question. How do you spell salvation? Now, I know I can't spell very well, but (laughs) that's not actually what I mean literally. Let me tell you what I mean. Many people spell salvation D-O. That is, there's something that you have to do in order to be saved, whether that's join a church, do good works, give to the poor, but you have to do something. Some people spell salvation D-O-N-T. Their thinking is that if you don't do certain things like murder, rob, or steal, then you will be saved. But do you know how God spells salvation? He spells it D-O-N-E. See, there's no strings attached. There's no fine print in the contract. When you accept Jesus, God accepts you into his family. Now, I meet people on a daily basis who are striving and straining and trying and yearning to earn their salvation when all you have to do is just receive salvation as a gift. Just this past week, a person who's been saved, who's been a Christian for over 40 years said to me, Oh, I'm just trying my best. I hope I do enough to make it to heaven. 
And you know, that grieved my heart so much. And I told that person, God does not relate to you on the basis of your goodness and what you deserve and what you earn. He relates to you on the basis of his grace. But it was just like that went over their head, like they couldn't get it and they couldn't understand it. And I think that could partly be because everything about our society teaches us that you get in life what you earn. You get what you work for. You get what you pay for. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the problem is when people think the same way about their paycheck and their possessions as they relate to God. In verse 11, it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. I want you to focus on that one phrase. The grace of God that brings salvation. Notice it's not the goodness of people that brings salvation. It's not the sincerity of religion that brings salvation. It is the grace of God that brings salvation. Now, to understand what grace really is, I think we need to put two adjectives with it, and that is unconditional and unmerited. There's no strings attached to God's grace. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's no way you can work for it. There's not enough money to buy it. It is a gift. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. That means that salvation is not based on my performance. It's based on God's promise. It's not based on my merit. It's based on God's mercy. It's not based on my goodness. It's based on God's grace. And although many of us, I think, can accept that we need to rely on God's grace for our initial entry into the faith, we often live as if everything after that depends on our work. It's as if we need grace to be forgiven and saved, but then our daily walking with God has to be in our own effort. But that's not how it works. The way to God, we come to God is the way we continue with God. It's just as crazy to think that you can grow spiritually by your own effort as it is to think that you can save yourself by your own effort. It's just as reckless to think that we can maintain our standing with God by works as it is to think that we can be accepted by works in the first place. Galatians 3.3 says, Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? You know, a, a couple of months ago, I had the privilege of going to Cuba with my dad and my two sisters for a family vacation. Uh, my dad, he paid for the entire trip for all of us, and that was very generous of him. But can you imagine if me and my sisters went up to him and gave him a dime, 10 cents, and said, here, put this towards the cost of the trip? How insulting would that be? Well, the same is true when we try to earn our salvation by human effort. It's just so small and it will never, ever be enough. Let me put it another way, just so you can get it for sure. In the book, The Mystery of Christ's Body, the author Kent Hughes writes, Imagine that an airplane flies over the South Atlantic and crashes a thousand miles from any coast. In the plane, there are three individuals, a great Olympic swimmer, an average swimmer, and someone like me who can't swim at all. 
The Olympic star calls out, follow me, I'll get you out of this, and takes off with an impressive crawl, heading for the tip of South America, a thousand miles away. The other two jump after him. In about 30 seconds, the non-swimmer goes down. In about 30 minutes, the average swimmer goes down. But the champion swimmer churns away for 24 hours, covering an impressive uh, 50 miles. Terrific, right? Only 475 miles to hours to go. He'll be there in 19 days if he doesn't slow down. See, the truth is our paddling will never do. No matter how good we are, the distance is too far and we're too flawed. We can try, by, but all of our good works will be no more beneficial, he says, than rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. We are going to sink. The, the Bible says in Romans eleven six, and if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Grace is amazing because it saves us from the penalty of sin, something that we can never do ourselves. The second thing that we see in this passage that amazes me about grace is that grace teaches us how to live. In verse 12, it says, This grace that has appeared teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live safe, self-contained, upright, and godly lives in this present age. James Merritt said, The moment you become a believer, you not only become a part of God's family, you are enrolled in Grace University. The first day you go to school, he teaches you two lessons. God loves you the way you are, and he loves you too much to let you stay that way. You know, I know people that believe grace is a dangerous doctrine. They say if you teach people that a person can be saved by grace and that their goodness and good works have nothing to do with receiving salvation, then people are going to think that they can just receive God and go out and live any way that they want to. In fact, that very thing was happening in the early church. In Jude 4, we read, some godless people, People have wormed their way in among you, saying that God's grace and forgiveness allows us to live immoral lives. See, Jude calls anyone who teaches that godless. You see, grace doesn't give us the license to live like you want to. It gives us the liberty to live like we ought to. You know what grace does? It changes you. It changes your heart because God gives you a new heart. It changes your habits because you'll want to do those things that bring glory and honor to the one who has given you the grace to begin with. A person who's experienced the grace of God, they can't live like they used to, and they want to live like they ought to. In verse 14, we see that, the great, that grace also teaches us to be eager to do what is good. When we truly experience God's amazing grace, we'll want to show grace to other people. We'll want to serve others. Listen to 2 Corinthians 9.8. It says, God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Now, some people think that, that grace is the end of being saved, but really it's just the beginning. The grace that saves you from sin is the grace that sustains you. It's the, gra- it's, it's the grace that changes you and sends you out to serve others. In Romans 6, 1 to 3, Paul speaks of grace in a similar way. 
He says, what shall we say then? Should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Here, Paul affirms that if we sin, then grace does increase. But he then says that believers have died to sin. We died to sin when we were united with Christ in his death and resurrection. That means we are no longer slaves to sin, but now we're slaves to righteousness. God's grace has cured us from our predisposition towards sin. That means deep down inside, you actually don't want to sin. You're no longer compatible with it. It's like you're allergic to sin and addicted to Jesus. While God's grace does increase if we sin and we will sin, it also teaches us, though, to live godly lives. We don't need to be afraid of grace. It is by God's grace that we have received a new heart, a new spirit, and God's spirit is living in us. We're designed to be inspired from within by God's grace. Now, the third thing we see that's so amazing about grace is that God's grace gives us hope for eternity. Verse 13 says, Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, one day, by the grace of God, the Lord Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to take us away from the very presence of sin, and we're not going to have to struggle with sin anymore. You see, Jesus came the first time to take away my sin. He's coming second time to take us away from sin. He's going to come back and he's going to take me not only to something, but from something. Because of God's amazing grace, we have the hope that one day we're not going to struggle with sin ever again. Now, I don't know about you or how often you think about heaven, but I can promise you this. The older you get, the more you're going to think about it and long for it. I, I was visiting a dear lady, she's a senior, and she can't come out to church anymore because of her health, and uh, we had a really nice visit that day, but I would say that for the most time that I was there, all she talked about was her longing for Jesus to take her home, how tired she was of this old sinful world. We shared communion together that day, and with tears running down her cheeks, she kept thanking God for his amazing grace in her life. I left that day feeling so encouraged. She was an example to me of how God's grace saves us, sustains us, and gives us hope for eternity. I I think she would agree with John Newton when he wrote, through many dangers, toils, and snares, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Because of God's amazing grace, we have this eternal hope. I read that on John Newton's tombstone is the following inscription. John Newton, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slavers in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. See, on his tombstone is his grace story. And if you've come to know Jesus and experienced his grace in your life, you too have a grace story. 
Now, I'd like to conclude this morning with one more grace story. I read about this business person named Peter Drucker. Maybe you've heard of him. Apparently, he had an IQ off the charts. He was known as the father of American management. In fact, he wrote the first book on management over 50 years ago, and his books are studied even to this day in business schools around the world. Peter Drucker was also a Christian. And a pastor who was a very close friend of his went to his home one day to talk to him and asked him, how is it that you finally became a Christian? How did you finally step across the line and put your trust in Jesus and accept him as your Lord? He said, Peter Drucker thought about it for just a second and he said, when I finally understood grace, I realized I was never going to get a better deal than that. I am amazed by grace because you are never going to get a better deal than that. Before we close, I'd like to ask everyone if they would just close their eyes and bow their heads for a second. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, I want you to know that you're never going to get a better deal than the one I'm going to tell you about. For your sin, God is willing to give you his salvation. For your failures, God is willing to give you his forgiveness. For your guilt, God is willing to give you his grace all absolutely free. Isaiah 30, 18 says, The Lord longs to be gracious to you. And maybe you've held off accepting Jesus because you're afraid of being rejected. Maybe you think, God would never accept me. Well, let me tell you something. The Bible says that anyone who wants to come to Jesus can come to Jesus and he will be accepted because that is what grace is all about. It's really that simple. The more you feel your need for grace, the better candidate you are to receive it. So hold out your empty hands and ask God for his grace today. You will not be turned away. It's never too late. Though your sins be like scarlet, God says they will be as white as snow. And this is the miracle, the wonder, the scandal, the shock of God's grace. It truly is out of this world. For no one in this world would ever have thought of something as amazing as this. And here is the good news of the gospel that we can receive his amazing grace. And if you would like to accept his free gift of salvation today, I would just ask if you would just raise your hand, just put it up so I can see, because I'd love to pray for you if there's anyone here. Thank you. Um, If you're here and you've already know Jesus as your Savior, but you are living with a sense of guilt and shame and condemnation, maybe you feel feel a fear of failure, you, you never feel good enough and you're striving, you would say, Connie, I need God's grace to set me free. I need a fresh revelation of God's grace today. Would you also raise your hand? I'd love to pray for you as well. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your amazing grace. Oh, we are just so grateful, God. And I just pray for that person that needs to receive your grace today. God, I thank you that that you love that person with an everlasting love, God. And I just pray that you would reveal yourself and that, that you would just help them to understand and know your salvation today, God. And I pray that you would just minister to them. For everyone else here today, help us to be amazed by your grace once again, that we would be reminded 
of just what we have and how blessed we are to know you and experience that amazing grace in our lives. Help us to live each day free, knowing who we are in Christ, that we can know that even though sometimes we might sin or make a mistake or do something wrong, I am still a child of God and God's grace is there. I don't have to live in guilt and shame and condemnation, God. Just thank you and ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's worship God together.